Hello, and welcome to Banking Transform. I'm your host, Jim Maroos, owner and CEO of the Digital Bank Report and co-publisher of the financial brand. The COVID-19 crisis has impacted both humanity and business in an instantaneous and dramatic way. But while each pandemic throughout history has been unique, each has brought about massive changes in the way we live, the priorities we set, how we interact, and the businesses that emerge. Survival is a great motivator for change. As a result, pandemics have always led to innovations that have changed our lives. We have already seen the increased reliance on remote working, contactless commerce, video engagement, and new forms of entertainment. We have also seen a disruption across financial services. Today, we are joined by Richard Turin, financial technology consultant and best-selling author of the book, Innovation Lab Excellence, Digital Transformation from Within. With a history as a banker and the head of IBM's Innovation Lab in Singapore, Richard explains why COVID-19 will fuel the next wave of innovation in banking. So welcome to the show, Richard. While we have never met in person, we have definitely gotten to know each other over the years. Uh, Beyond simply following each other on Twitter and LinkedIn, we have had several discussions around the innovation process, and you've contributed articles to the financial brand. In fact, I think it includes your most recent article about what it's like to live in a cashless and mask environment in Shanghai. Could you share a bit about your background for our listeners and also give us a perspective of how things are going right now in, in China? Sure. Um, It's a pleasure to be here, and thanks for having me, Jim. Look, for all of the listeners out there, I'm talking to Jim right now sitting in Shanghai, China, and I've lived here for the last 10 years. Report from Shanghai. Listen, here's the stunning thing, and I know that China is a sensitive subject right now for all of our listeners. Shanghai is at about 95% of normal. Let me explain that. The bars are open. My yoga studio is open. The banks are open. Everything is open. We have three things that we live with every day. I wear a mask before going out, and believe me, you don't forget it. Not that somebody's going to beat you up, but my the, the, the people who live in my building will say, hey, you know, you don't have your mask. Um, so we have a masks, and, you know, when I go to a place like to get my hair cut or when I go to a yoga studio, they... They check our temperature before we're allowed to go in. And everybody has an app on their phone that basically has a red, yellow, or green code. And it's just like a stoplight. It means you have to go home because you have to go to quarantine or you're green and you can you can go and enjoy the city and do what you want. So Shanghai is very highly managed, but it's really allowed the city to open up and we enjoy very normal lives now. Isn't that somewhat like Hong Kong is? I mean, I know I went to Hong Kong several years ago, and they were wearing masks back then. I mean, there's just a a society that, and that's not a required situation. That's more of a, at least right now, it's more of a democratic society. But it's interesting because while they were shut down, the number of deaths and all these other things were so much lower than in many other countries. And I think that's somewhat a reflection upon the fact that just the mask element is more accepted, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. You know, really, if you go to Asia and the biggest wearer of masks on the planet is Japan, if you've got a cold or the sniffles and, you know, people wear masks and it's people don't look at you funny. It's just the norm. So we wear a mask. And really, Hong Kong after SARS, Taiwan, Taipei, where I spent time just recently, 
people wear a mask. It's not considered a big thing or it's not considered unusual in any way. So wearing a mask, no big deal. So getting into innovation, your international bestselling book, Innovation Lab Excellence, Digital Transformation from Within, was published last year. But we have obviously experienced some very dramatic changes worldwide since the beginning of last year. Have any of the premises of your book changed due to COVID-19 or even enhanced? Yeah, the latter. Okay. First, shout out to anybody who is managing, has access to, or is any way responsible to your innovation lab. This is my one soapbox stand, right? Please, this is the time where you need to use your innovation team more than ever. And if your institution is considering downsizing, please do not downsize your innovation team because you need them. Even if you've Perhaps they've not been as productive as you may have wanted them to be. Going forward, innovation is going to drive banking at every level, and they are more important now than ever before. And the the basic premise of the book is more valid now than ever. And just for the record, I even have a chapter in the book on what to do with your innovation lab during downtimes. You know, and I call the chapter in sickness and in health, and we're all in sickness now. So, well, there you go. That's pretty good prediction on your part. We should, uh, you know, it's good that you were prepared for the future. But the digital transformation process obviously was going on even before the coronavirus crisis, and was an important foundation for your book as well. Did COVID-19 reveal flaws within the banking industry regarding commitment to innovation between organizations? Yeah, absolutely. You know, it really became clear immediately who are the digital laggards and who are the digital leaders. And I can use myself. I have the greatest story. It's going to kill you. Ready? So my bank in the United States, I wanted to transfer some money to China. Can't do it. I have to go in person to the bank to make a swift transfer. Somebody has to be there, right? My bank in Singapore, no problem. I can make a Swiss transfer online, not an issue. So here's how I actually take money out of my U.S. accounts, right? I literally go to a cash machine in China. I stick the card for the U.S. bank, take the money out, right? And then in the same machine, it's one of these special machines that counts, you put the same cash back in. But I stick my China ATM card, so I take the withdrawal out of the United States, take the same money and put it right back in the machine, but it added to my into my uh, Shanghai account. It's nuts. That's a great example. But listeners realize that I've had a couple stories here. One of them is exactly the same as yours trying to transfer money, trying to do a wire transfer overseas, I can't use TransferWise because my bank won't accept any links to Plaid, which is how TransferWise is transferred. So I have to send a wire transfer that costs me over $100 instead of doing something that will cost me less than 20 On top of that, when I do a transfer between banks, which I do every month, twice a month, it is easier for me to write myself a check and do a mobile deposit capture than it is, is to link the two banks because they don't talk well together. And there's a timing a difference where 
if I do a transfer that I have a longer hold on accounts than if I deposit a check from the exact same bank. So, you know, to your point about laggards and leaders, we did research for the Digital Banking Report last fall that found that less than 20% of financial institutions consider themselves to be innovation leaders. And I, I thought that was pretty good. And for the most part, you'd think they'd probably downplay if they would be considered leaders among their peers. But the vast majority consider themselves to either be fast followers or mainstream players. Do you think these numbers or these percentages may have changed over the last, or do you think the numbers will change over the next six, eight, nine months? Wow, that's really an interesting question. And, you know, look, the concept of being a fast follower really sounds nice, but what it really means is you're slow. (laughs) Oh, exactly. The real question is, what percentage of banks will continue to be slow at innovating and slow at bringing in new digital technology? And I certainly hope that COVID changes financial institutions' desire and cultural background for change and makes them want it more because, frankly, the digital laggard banks, which I am a customer of, I simply can't use right now. So when I do go back to the United States on my list of things to do, and I have a whole list, you know, I actually have a Evernote, right? And I put a list. One of my things in the list is get rid of that bank and transfer to another bank and make sure that bank has swift online transfers for me. To that point, though, do you think this may happen with a lot of consumers? So what COVID-19 did, it revealed the flaws of digital transformation where if an organization was faking digital, as I like to call it, as opposed to really having a digital integration and engagement process, those flaws showed up. And right now, you can't go to the bank very easily. You can't get into the bank at all. In the U.S., we're, we're starting to unwind lockdown a little bit. But in those cases... Do you think there's going to be a lot of consumers that because of all the innovation they got exposed to during COVID, from Zoom to grocery delivery to other things, that a lot of things you take for granted over in China, do you think there's going to be a lot of consumers are going to switch organizations based on how much lack of innovation these organizations have had? Absolutely. The really interesting thing to come out of this is that During this crisis, we saw that digital systems can handle much more of our lives than we thought. Most people who are not in the tech business, like you or me, um, were unaware of Zoom. They were unaware of all of these digital facilities that we could use to go to work, and people are working from home. It's changed how we, we look at our lives and how we look at work. And yes, if we have, there are certainly other people like me who have digital laggard banks And they're going to be asking, well, how come my friend Jim, who I'm talking to right now, he could make the transfer and I couldn't? Why is that? And that's not going to be a secret because people are talking to one another and we're all talking about our problems as well as our successes. And, you know, it's going to come out. And I think for many of the the institutions that were slow and said, hey, we don't we'll get to this next year, next week, next quarter, whatever. They're going to get hit, and they deserved it. They've asked for it. They fell behind. So it was a bad management call to be, quote, the fast follower. What's going to be interesting is, you know, to that question about that I asked you about the leaders, mainstream, and fast followers, I'm thinking that the bar or the tide may have risen, but the numbers themselves may not change that much. In other words, you still may have slightly less than 20% of being leaders – 
but the level of what those organizations can do elevated. Even in the fast follower and mainstream players, those probably also increased as far as what they're able to do because of necessity, but they're still going to consider themselves to be, by the way, we weren't there when our customers needed us. Yeah, and that's a fail, right? Yeah, yeah, it is. I mean, yeah, if you are the institution that has to look at your customers in the face and say, we weren't there when you needed it, you're not doing your job. I'm sorry, it's harsh, and I apologize if it's overtly you know, hostile, but yeah, that's a terrible position to be in. And the question is, how are you going to dig yourself out? And it gets down, again, we found in our, uh, our research that digital transformation and innovation were aligned. I mean, the correlation between digital transformation, innovation, use of new technologies, the level of customer experience, and revenues were all tightly correlated. So I think, you know, to your point, it's not an elective anymore, if it ever was. But it, it probably increases the value of being considered an innovative organization. And as has happened with digital transformation, the consumer's almost pushing the process now as opposed to accepting what the banks are providing, aren't they? Yes, absolutely. The concept of consumer driving and consumer pushing digital transformation and the need for digital services is clear. But here's the question that comes out of this. Once People are let out of their houses, and I understand that this week it's been a good week. People are out to get, are able to get out. How many are going to wait for their banks to provide that service rather than simply move their money to someplace else? And again, you know the statistics better than me, but we now have banking customers who are highly mobile. There's no reason to stick in to any particular institution. So. What will be interesting to see is, you know, okay, fine. You're the bank manager and you say, we failed you. And you tell the client, we're, we're going to build those systems in the next six months. Can you hang with us? Well, they, they can't be. They've been conditioned now. And not just conditioned in the banking industry, but again, we get back to, they've been conditioned with delivery of restaurant services, the, the meals. They've been conditioned to the grocery store that they never knew could deliver their groceries and learn from the process on an ongoing basis. Hey, they've been conditioned by Zoom where all of a sudden they're going to say, what do you mean I have to come into the branch to meet you face-to-face? Can I do it through Zoom or FaceTime? And they're going to go, I'm sorry, we're not allowed to connect via outside services. Do you want to just do it over the phone? And the consumer's going to shake their head and go, what? My small retailer down the street that has one store and works with our community has all the things I'm asking from you, and I don't have to go there to buy. You know, So in your book, you shared what you consider to be best practices within financial services regarding innovation. Could you share some of those findings? Oh, sure. Let's talk about them a second. And let's think about why I call them best practices and not rules, okay? Innovation teams, innovation labs, any group of people who are trying to be innovative together would fit into this. They all do very, very different things. So, The concept of saying, well, I've got a set of rules that will make you innovative just doesn't work. So what I came up with was something that's a little bit lighter, and it's the concept of best practices. And what I like to say is I've got a dozen best practices that will hopefully make innovation better, more efficient at your organization. And the ones you like, use And the ones that are not relevant for you or perhaps you're already doing very well, don't use. 
but they came to me. I was an innovator in the banking community for 18 years. I worked on trading floors and I designed new products, um, new traded fixed income products. And I worked with computer programmers, legal accountant, and uh, me, mathematician, sales kind of guy. And what I discovered was that when I was working with innovation labs out of Singapore, in particular where I worked at IBM, I was the head of their FinTech innovation team on their lab, and my clients were other labs. So what I found was the same problems were being repeated over and over at the innovation labs at different financial institutions, because that's all I covered. And so what I did was I sort of summarized um, what are essentially, you know, 12 best practices, 12 things that you can check to make sure you're doing to make your uh, innovation run more smoothly. And I liken them to illnesses. You know, in my book, I've got a picture of a body with the little arrows, you know, like your knee hurts um, sort of thing. And, you know, so what really came out of this was, was the series of 12, and I'll go over a few of them if you'd like. You know, there are essentially 12 of these best practices, and and they are of varying degrees of relevance to the different teams that may be listening. But the first one and the number the number one that comes on the list is, of course, to be, if you're an innovation team, to be highly visible to the business units that you support. And this is time and time again the problem. We think about innovation teams as those guys in the other building. <laughs> in fact, we love the innovation team so much, we bought them their own lab space 20 miles away from the main office, and it's got a foosball table, and it looks really sexy, but we don't really know them, and we don't see them. You know, that's sort of the classic innovation team problem. So the biggest issue for innovation teams is to be known, to be in and around the, uh, the business unit managers whom you serve, because in the end, you really, as an innovation person, you serve the business units, and to be on their call button, you know, so be known to them so that they know who to call so they, the business unit managers, know who to call and who to reach out to when they have a problem. And that's time and time again the problem. I mean, literally, you can. You, I've been to meetings. It's really funny. You go to a meeting and the laboratory guy sits down and there are six other executives and three of the executives know the lab head and the other three are like, hi, we've never met. Just on that subject alone, how do we deal with that if we're going to remain in, at least for a time being, a work-from-home or a work-remote environment? How do we build that engagement, that collaboration in a remote setting? Because a lot of banks, either they're going to give employees the option or they may stay in a remote environment going forward. Yeah, and that's a really great question and a tough thing for innovators to do because business managers right now, some of them are being forced into rapid innovation. Others are trying to just keep things as stable as possible, and it depends on which end of the divide you're at. But if you're an innovation lab manager right now, your job is to be reaching out, all right? So if there's any lab manager who's listening to me, your job right now is to reach out to all of these business unit leaders and call them, email them, contact them, let them know that you are a resource for them to basically solve problems that they didn't have a couple of months ago. So that is, on one hand, the role of the innovation manager. 
It's also the role of senior management who are paying the bills for the lab to let their other team members know that the lab is there and and they're a useful resource, especially a useful resource when innovation is a priority. Yeah. And what were some of the other best practices you saw? You know, Jim, there's no magic bullet for that one. There really isn't. Yeah. It goes right back down to the real basics. You've got to reach out and extend that hand to help people. And the hand's got to go both ways. What are the other things? Here's the big one that comes up time and time again. People who work on innovation teams, some of them get derailed, if you will. And instead of focusing on people, they tend to focus on technology Because frankly, it's easier to focus on mastering a technology than it is to master people. So what I like to say all the time is that innovation is really not about the technology. It's really about the people and their relationship to technology. And the innovations team is to make that bridge, to make it so that your clients or your coworkers have a bridge to technology so that they're comfortable with it so that the technology is usable, not threatening. And that's really a big part of it. So, you know, I like to talk about blockchain a lot because I love blockchain. But another thing is a lot of money has been wasted on blockchain POCs. So I'd walk into an innovation team and I'd see teams that were just really fabulous. They were ace blockchain hyperledger, which was an IBM open source project. Okay, they were great at hyperledger, great at R3's Corda. But you know something? I asked them, so who are the teams that are going to use this? And they're like, well, it's the back office, you know, trade reconciliation group. Have you talked to them? No. So so what good is being the best blockchain coder in the planet going to do you if the people who are using it haven't heard from you? You know, and I know that may sound amusing, but that really happens, I swear. Well, it's interesting because two weeks ago we had Tom Peters, a management guru from 40 years ago on the show. And he also said, you know, it gets down to it, be it the way you hire, the way you train, the culture you create. It does come down to people. Overall, innovation and digital transformation is not about the technology as much as it is about the people and culture. And and I think we use people and culture interchangeably. But bottom line is, if you look at the best organizations globally on innovation, you have to look at the very top of those organizations to see what kind of leadership they have to really determine if their innovation is going to be stuck in the innovation lab or it's going to get out on the street. When I went to China at the beginning of this year, one of the things that stood out with all the organizations we visited was not only the culture of those innovative companies, but the culture of China itself with regards to sharing insights and sharing data, the ability of using that data in an open environment to basically provide financial services and other services to the masses, including those people that may be underbanked in other countries. So you've been in China now for over a decade. What are the main differences you see between the perspective on innovation in China and most Western countries? Both tremendous questions. Look, if you're a manager at a U.S. bank right now, most are not really looking to innovate on the work, on their job. It's perhaps an emphasis pushed down through the CEO, but mostly you get the memo and you say, okay, that's nice. Next, who cares? If you're a bank manager in China, you must innovate. It is your job to innovate. And 
here's the reason why. You have already been disrupted. <laughs> here's, here's the amazing thing. When I arrived in China 10 years ago, we were still getting bricks of 100 RMB banknotes. The largest banknote in China is 100 RMB. It's $14 US. So if I have to pay, when I paid security deposits, rent an apartment, I literally had to pay it with a block of cash that you hand over to your landlord, okay? That's what we were doing 10 years ago. When Alipay and WeChat Pay broke onto the scene, it disrupted the entire payment business for banks. Now, let's make it clear. Banks have commercial, they have many different divisions. It did not disrupt the entirety of the banking organization, but it did disrupt heavily retail payments and the card business. So the banks here all have been traumatized by what big tech did to them. Now, hold on here, let's take another step. When I say WeChat Pay and Alipay, WeChat is the equivalent of Facebook, and Alipay is Alibaba company, which is the equivalent of Amazon. They were given full out banking licenses in 2013 and 14, end of 13 and 14. You could not imagine a bigger disruption for the state-owned banks. So a typical manager at a bank here is certainly switched on to innovation and they are predisposed to think that if you've got an innovative digital product, digital service, or digital technique that will somehow make my business unit make more money or do something more efficiently or work better in some form, no problem. There, you know, there's no, I have to go talk to the boss, I'm gonna think about this. No, of course you're gonna fight on how much it's worth, but the general manager here is biased toward innovation and biased toward action. And there's no question about the, that they got that way because they faced tremendous competitors through big tech. So with so many innovation initiatives failing, why do we often refer to innovation theater and, and why do these innovations um, initiatives fail, do you think? Look, it's a great question, and my uh, I generally go to what I call innovation theater, where companies try to showcase and make pretend they're very innovative by press releases, hackathons, lots of high visibility innovation style events, but then actually use very little of that innovation in the company. So innovation generally fails because of a lack of culture from the C-level management. So when I work with Chinese banks here, what I see are, I got senior level, C-level banking guys who reach out to me on LinkedIn and want to talk about my book. So you see people who are predisposed to be interested in innovation and it happens at the highest levels. And through a career of 18 years sitting on trading floors and working in banks in the States and in Europe and through many clients in Singapore, what I see in that environment is a sensation of how can I keep things as much the same as possible so that my job and my life is as stable and as uninterrupted and, and undisturbed as possible. Yeah. I don't know how to explain it any better. It's really shocking to see the difference. 
Well, it's interesting because, you know, what COVID did, and I, I call it the heart attack moment, is that it was likened to going to your doctor for years and him telling you what you should be doing and you feeling pretty doggone well. And so you're not going to change anything. But then you go on that one appointment and he goes, by the way, we've gotten some tests back and it looks like you may die. It's amazing how your diet changes and your exercise routine changes because of that moment. And, and you know, COVID-19 globally in many ways, because it's changed humanity and business, it's that moment, that transformation moment that you're going to see every industry dramatically change based on what's happened. We just got the numbers back from Target, Walmart, Amazon, Facebook, all the digital players and those that have a, a strong digital presence. Their numbers, as you could expect, in the first quarter. So we're only talking probably in the United States, one month of the impact were 70, 80, 90% better than they were last year. Well, that's because the marketplace was forced to use them that way. But as the consumer spends more and more time getting used to engaging that way, it's going to certainly change the perspective on what organizations have to do. And again, some organizations, I, I relate to the, the what I'll say the middle asset class, are going to find it very difficult to catch up because it takes an investment. Those smallest organizations can certainly lean on their localized nature. Plus, as I used to use the analogy, it's not as hard to, to turn a pickup truck as is a semi. And therefore, the ability to pivot is a little bit easier for the smallest organizations who have probably in many cases a little bit more patience from their customers than the what I call the quasi big, not the biggest, but the midsize that are thought to be big, but don't have the capital to do this. And certainly not the capital in a new environment where the finances are certainly going to be impacted. Absolutely. So here's the dilemma. Let's just say you're a mid-tier bank, you've got reasonable systems, you've got APIs. Let's pray that you're moderate enough to have API, APIs into your, into your system. Ready? There's only one way that they can go. They have to drive themselves. This will force, should force, American mid-tier and large-tier banks into greater adoption of open banking. Yeah. Okay? So... If you're not able to throw more innovation onto the plate quickly, which is probably what 99% of the banks, big, small, and indifferent, can't do, the best thing you can do is to go to your APIs, open them up, and say, what third parties can help us make money? And I think that open banking in the United States has been tremendously delayed. It's been put off because there's a Centricity for banks to think that they are the center. They are central to your existence and all other things, whether they're Amazon, Google, all big tech, all other potential shopping or, or whatever, that is all secondary. And in fact, for most of our lives, banking is secondary. And in fact, my Amazon account or my Netflix or whatever is far more important to me. Right. Unless banks are able to use COVID-19 to make that leap to say, we're going to open some APIs up, we're either going to put portions of our bank technology on somebody else's platform or let somebody else use ours, whatever, unless they're willing to open up the bank, what are they going to do? That's going to probably add a lot more momentum to collaboration with fintechs as well. I mean, part of that will come from the fact that the investment in fintechs from outsiders is probably going to be somewhat depleted, except for the biggest players. But that's going to really move both the fintechs and the traditional banks 
closer together because the best way to jumpstart innovation is to partner with somebody who's already been there than to try to build it all from within. And, and we see that even from the biggest companies. Absolutely. So, you know, partnering with fintechs is fantastic. Partnering with third parties who have allied interests with your clients is a good thing. And, you know, you really need to come to China where you can look at ICBC, one of the four biggest state banks. They actually run on their own internet sites a tremendously large shopping site like Amazon or you buy whatever you want. And, you know, it's hard to think of a bank in the United States as running a consumer or SME. Also, they have a special one for consumers and they have another site, by the way, for SMEs. It's hard for a bank to think of themselves doing that in that role in the United States. It's just not something that we think of. But we need to start thinking in those terms. We need to think of open banking, offering different services as not unusual or strange, but the norm. And I think COVID-19 will hopefully push banks in that direction for lack of other options. And if that means partnering with fintechs who can bring your clients cash management, account aggregation, or other useful services that you would not have used before, it's time. So finally, Richard, you've already mentioned DBS. What other financial institutions do you admire in the marketplace with regard to what they're doing in the innovation area, the way their culture works, things of that nature? Look, I can't help myself. DBS is fantastic. Of the major banks, I think DBS has embodied the innovation culture better than any other institution that I know of. But you have to look outside of the traditional banking roles. So for me, the Google search that I perform every morning religiously, and it is the only one on a corporate name, is Ant Financial. Because they are the father of modern fintech, and they have fundamentally changed our world in ways that are hard to imagine. And, you know, you mentioned before, and we kind of got off track on this, you mentioned before financial inclusion. So you got to really think about China and what these financial apps did. In 2011, China had 64% um, of its uh, population was banked, okay? 64 less 100, so I've got 30, 36% unbanked, all right? So now I've got 79% of the country that's got bank accounts. So you've gone from 64 to 79, it was 1.4 billion people. Now that still, interestingly enough, leaves 200 million people with their bank accounts. But if you look at the UNESCO statistics or UN statistics for progress in unbanked population, they have to put an asterisk on the graph because it's all due to China. Right. You know, as I found when I was there, it gets down to the data. You know, they don't use credit bureaus the way we use them in the States and in other areas of the world. They look at all elements of data, mobile data included, as well as other elements. You know, obviously, Alibaba uses the purchase data, but to find out how bank-worthy a consumer is. It's not defined strictly by what kind of credit you have. It's defined by how often you make payments to utilities, to renters, whatever it may be, what kind of purchases you make. All those other elements give you a definition as to the person behind the technology, which is important. 
You know, on that note, Richard, I just want to thank you so much for being on the show. It's always great to talk to you. It's always great to interact with you. Jim, it's absolutely my pleasure. And I'd like to have a shout out to all the innovators out there. Thanks a lot, Richard. Talk to you later. Pleasure's mine. So it was great catching up with Richard. Um, a good friend really has this pulse on not only what's happened internationally with regard to innovation, but can always put the perspective of what's going on in China. And I think, you know, what came out of this is that COVID only increases the importance of innovation in banking, not just from the standpoint of catching up or keeping up, but really distinguishing organizations from each other, from the consumer's perspective. I think COVID is going to make consumers much more aware than ever about what organizations are innovating on their behalf or simply staying put. And I think people are going to make decisions as to who they want to bank with based on that. Thanks for listening to Banking Transform, raise a top five banking podcast. I genuinely appreciate the support you have provided since the start of this endeavor. If you enjoy what we are doing, please be sure to subscribe to Banking Transformed on your favorite podcast app. In addition, please take 30 to 45 seconds to show some love in the form of a review. It means the world to us. Finally, be sure to catch my recent articles on the financial brand and check out the research we are doing on digital transformation, retail banking innovation, the future of work, and the digital customer experience for the Digital Bank Report. This has been a production of Evergreen Podcast. A special thank you to our producer, Leah Lombrake, and audio engineer, Sean Rule Hoffman. I'm your host, Jim Roos. Until next time, stay safe and stay healthy. The Jim Stroud Podcast explores the discoveries and trends forming the future of our lives. Brain-to-brain communication, robot bosses, microchip implants for workers, and artificial intelligence replacing human workers are all happening now. If you want to know what's happening next, subscribe now to the Jim Stroud Podcast.